Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. And welcome to Radiotherapy. Today on the show, we are going to be talking about something that most of us spend every single day doing at least once or twice if you live around the Mediterranean. Now, after a good one, you feel 10 feet tall and ready to take on the world. After a not so good one, you feel like a sack of oats just dragging yourself around. Poets rhyme about it, painters canvas it, political speeches induce it, and worrying about where your teenagers are at night precludes it. We're talking about sleep, perchance to dream, EpiPen. And we have two experts in the studio to help us talk about sleep. Both of our guests have been putting people to sleep for years. First up is Professor Paul Miles. Paul is the Director of Anesthesiology, I love saying that word, and Perioperative Medicine at the Alfred Hospital and Monash University. He is also a National Health and Medical Research Council Practitioner Fellow and a fellow of the Australian Academy of Health and Medical Sciences. He's also a jolly good fellow. His research interests include recovery after surgery, preventing awareness during surgery, and novel ways to treat depression. Now, with that bio alone, we could spend a couple of shows uh, chatting with Paul. He will be talking with us about some of the science of sleep and how that translates to the subjective experience of schluffing, which is Yiddish for sleeping. Dr. Frank Carhill is a clinical and counselling psychologist working at the Epworth Sleep Centre. He spent the last 20 years in clinical practice using a plurality of techniques to help people overcome insomnia, parasomnias, which we'll talk about, and anxiety and depressive disorders. He's a member of the Australian Sleep Association and the Australian Psychological Society. So he's well-placed to give us some practical strategies about getting a good night's schluff and what to do if you're not. Plus... The effervescent nurse EpiPen, who's staring at me across from the desk, <laughs> makes her triumphant return after her radiotherapy sabbatical. And Dr. G-Spot will also be in the studio bringing us the latest from the medical journal. So stick with me, Dr. Mel, and the team for the next hour of radiotherapy. 
Now, just pretend you've heard Dr. Doctor give us the news um, because uh, Kentus Maximus, our producer, is out there having a chat. And I forgot to ask him to push some buttons. Good morning, Dr. J. Spot. Thanks so much for having me, Dr. Malpractice. What a special day of sleep we're talking about. One of my favourite things to do is sleep. One of my favourite things. That's Nurse Epi Penn the sleep in the corner. <laughs> we hope we don't put them to sleep, no, no. our listeners. So we should tell people to pull over to the side of the road. <laughs> for, for, an hour. for an hour. Do not operate heavy machinery <laughs> yeah, this, during this show. This could be sleep-inducing. <laughs> hey, uh, lots of interesting things to talk about that have appeared in the journals and in the papers over the last week. Nurse EpiPen? Okay, so I thought I'd just hit it off with yesterday's paper, which really was terribly interesting for me. Um, and it was the, it was titled Putting the Bite on Head Injuries. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a really fascinating area. And I think we've all known a little about, a bit about concussion on the sports field. Yeah. So these guys, Melbourne startup company called, I've pronounced it Hit IQ. So it's H I T Q I IQ IQ H I T I Q is the startup and the brain yeah. child of a guy called a group of people that and the Mike Vega is the managing director. Mm-hmm. And what I'm just gonna I'll just tell you a little bit about it. So concussion researchers are looking at recording head high forces absorbed by more than a hundred AFL and NRL footballers. These are part of these. Um, people are part men a part of a study t- in order to provide hard data for club doctors about the risk of brain injury mm. and might this with this research and I'll explain it a bit better in a sec with this research they might be able to better inform the doctors whether players could go back onto the field after a head injury uh, at bash I've often wondered how you make that assessment. Yeah. Like yes. What are the factors? So it's, it's, it's currently a clinical um, checklist that they have, but this, these, this startup group have made a mouth guard mm. and they've got tiny micro um, sensors inside the mi- mouth guard and it's, uh, they're purpose-built so they, f- they fit your face. So the, mm-hmm. the, all these people in the research project have got their own mouth guard and they wear it and it, but it's supposed to next year send data back live data bluetooth live data back to the doctor to see how much their heads wobbled and punched when they've had a head on injury so a clash with someone so this is because we all know about what's happened with mm. boxing mm. and mm. it's particular Steve Smith on the cricket field mm. what mm. you know he was pulled off and then mm. he went back on again and then he was pulled mm. off so it it might go to cricket but this is a really really fascinating Fascinating story. So I just I, I found I read an article and it's estimated that fifty percent of concussions go unnoticed, mm. and they estimate in the US alone that three point eight million sports related concussions occur in the US each year. Do you know? I, you know, I, the other day I was wondering what can you make a smart thing next to their smart glasses, their smart watches, their smart phones. <laughs> smart mouth guards, of course. Of course. So <laughs> a I Bluetooth just, mouth guard, that is fantastic. Yeah. Isn't it amazing? Yeah. So and I just want to give a plug to um, Dr. <clears throat> Andrew Gardner at the University of Newcastle. Mm. So he's a neuroscientist analysing this data and will be you know reviewing it all. And just for the listeners, I just thought because you might um, be looking after a child after they've played sport this mm. morning, um, some of the things that um, what the signs and symptoms of a concussion may look like, headache or feeling of mm. pressure on your head, temporary loss of consciousness, 
but that's not always um, a, a trigger or a sign. You might stay um, normal. Mm. Um, confusion or feeling as if in a fog, amnesia, dizziness, seeing stars, ringing in the ears, nausea, vomiting, slurred speech, delayed response stuff, to yeah. questions, and then could manifest also in <clears throat> sleep disturbances. Ah, that's Goodness. a segue into our show today. It is. Ah. <laughs> but for the listeners, um, I just thought there is a really <clears throat> nice website if you are worried about a child or <clears throat> a friend who's had some concussion, uh, concussioninsport.gov.au. Well, and if you have any of these symptoms, obviously, oh, please go and see you. a GP or present at an ED Absolutely. department. Mm. Absolutely. Dr G-Spot, something about sleep you were telling me. In, it's a bit tangential, but uh, <laughs> I was reading by Jensen et al. Um, in the Clinical, the Journal of Clinical <clears throat> Psychological Science, that contrary to popular belief, the amount of time young people spend on their smartphones is not having an impact on their mental health. See, if I could do a drum roll, I'd do that right now. Really? <laughs> <laughs> well, according to, to Jensen et al., it, it really is, yeah, that the time and frequency is not impacting on their mental health. They did a longitudinal study of almost 400 young people aged 10 to 17 in North Carolina. Check out the journal if you want to um, read more about their methodology. Mm. But, yeah, there was no link with um, anxiety, depression and smartphone use. But were they, did they look at content or did it time or...? Purely purely time, much mm. less about content. And I think that might be where the key is mm. here, what they're actually looking at and engaging with. And also they didn't look at effects on sleep. And I think that's a very interesting study and perhaps our guests can comment more on that later in the show. Mm. You'd have to think that having bright light just before you're trying to go to sleep would somehow affect your sleep. And we will ask our guests, but just common sense. No? I, I would think so as well. And I can't wait to hear their thoughts on that. Mm. Did, did you were they doing a diary of the number of hours that they yeah they actually um, followed them up on their smartphones asking them little questionnaires it's a really cool technique um, basically collecting in the moment data and they did this over two years so a, a big study over a long period of time and most of our data to uh, to date has been more sort of cross-sectional designs like just one moment in time so I think this is a really rigorous study and is saying you know maybe it's not just timing maybe mm. and actually could we use smartphones and social media and things like that for good with young people if they're spending so much time on it i wonder if we can direct messages to them ah, so this was jensen et al in... that's right in clinical psychological science do you know i've often thought about changing my name to et al so <laughs> imagine how many million publications dr malpractice et et al. Et al. Et al. et al dr et al that google me like four billion um, stay tuned. We're going to play some sponsorship announcements and we'll be coming back after that with Professor Paul Miles. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. This is Radiotherapy. This is me, Dr. Mel Practice. Uh, in the studio is Dr. G-Spot and uh, Nurse EpiPen, who's currently taking a photo. If only we had a webcam. And joining us... Is, uh, Can I say thank goodness we don't, yeah, Dr. Yeah, Mel Practice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, joining us is uh, Professor Paul Miles from the Alfred Hospital at Monash University. Good morning, Paul. Uh, good morning. How are you? Uh, very, very well. Now, tell us, what, what do you actually do? Because, you know, whenever I see an anaesthetists... Uh, so, so I don't go to theatre, you know, psychiatrists, we don't tend to go into theatre. I just sort of see anaesthetists casually walking around, having coffees, chatting. It looks pretty laid back. 
Um, <laughs> that's, that's, that's us debriefing. Um, uh, I mean, a perfect day for us is where everything goes according to script. Uh, the patient is uh, entirely comfortable throughout their operation and most importantly afterwards when they wake up. Yeah, yeah. And when that doesn't go well or something, you know, um, some adverse event or problem happens during the operation, we have to activate very quickly and correct things and it's obviously potentially life-threatening. So uh, we're on edge the whole time. Uh, when you see us out in the corridor of the, uh, of the hospital or in the, in the cafe, um, that's when we're winding down uh, and we rightfully do relax. Right. So, uh, as an anaesthetist, what do you do when you turn up to work? What's the, kind of the first thing you do? Well, I probably do what many people do and start with a cup of coffee. Yeah. Um, I do look forward to the day. Uh, I'm, I'm often thinking about, you know, what the particular issues are for that person having that particular operation, whether it's open heart surgery or bowel surgery or hip surgery and so on, uh, whether they've got some diseases such as diabetes or hypertension or something that might affect uh, the, their safety during the operation. So we have to sort of put all that information together and work out a, a sort of a recipe that suits that person mm. having that type of surgery. So that kind of, you're working, what are the things I'm worried about? What are the things that could go wrong? Uh, what do I need to do to prevent those? And we sort of get all that all organised. It's a little bit like a, a pilot might do when they're preparing to sort of yeah. take off on a plane. We yeah. want to have everything perfectly sort of thought out beforehand. Uh, and if it goes according to script, that's wonderful. We can sit back and look relax all through the day, uh, even crack a few jokes with the surgeon or the operating theatre team. Uh, if things don't go wrong, we have to try and pick it up early, yeah. not late. Yeah. Uh, and then we can tweak a few things, get things back on track. Uh, so that's the, sort of, that's the sort of way I approach the day. Because the, the kind of the, the idiot's guide to uh, anaesthetics, and I'm the idiot. Is, well, that's how I started as well. So. <laughs> is is uh, you basically just put bullet to sleep. But yes. then there's the sheer terror if something goes wrong, as you say, you know, blood pressure drops or I know, heart has an arrhythmia, that kind of thing. You guys are, have to manage it. Yeah, so one thing I should um, remind our listeners about is that the uh, what I now call an anesthesiologist, I think it's easier to say than anaesthetist, uh, what the anesthesiologist does uh, is not just put you to sleep and then, if you like, walk off and come back an hour later and see how it's all going. <laughs> it's not like baking a cake. Mm. Uh, that in actual fact, you need to be there second by second, monitoring every, every moment because we are the only person protecting the physiology uh, while the surgery is happening. And, and I always view this as the surgeons spending their time trying to sort of kill and macerate the patient. And, um, and and we're there to sort of smooth out those um, stormy waters. And oh, together, it works quite well. Oh, so it's more like a stir fry. You've got to be there tending it the whole time. The operation, oh, absolutely. And, and it's, it's not the sort of thing you go off and look through your mobile phone or anything else. It's yeah. uh, much more, needs a lot more attention than driving a car and so on. Um, but the thing is, we do make adjustments right through the, the operation to suit that person, um, that their blood pressure might be too low or too high or their heart's you know, running too fast uh, or their muscles are working in the wrong sort of ways. And we give a cocktail of medications to smooth that out. Just, just, I, mean, I don't want to get too complicated, but how do, I mean, you give people drugs to put them to sleep. How do you know when somebody is asleep? I mean, how do you know that? Well, I guess what we're trying to do, I mean, anesthesia is a, sort of a drug-induced coma. Mm. So we can uh, turn it on and, and, of course, at the end of the operation, turn it off again. Now, coma is not just a single entity. There's a, a light coma where you might be sort of, you know, very relaxed and then sort of semi-conscious and then deeply unconscious and then, in fact, deep coma. And then if you give too much 
of course you can create problems and, and actually cause you know severe heart and other problems. So the way we've done it for literally nearly 180 years is that we just obviously look at the person themselves, their eyes obviously close, they, they go into a restful, quiet breathing state, uh, their heart rate settles down, their blood pressure um, drops back a bit, and we just give it uh, more and more medication until we feel or believe they're in a state that, that is okay for surgery. So, hang on, so it's a bit of an art to that? Yeah, yeah. It's very much an art and very much requires, I guess, attention to detail and yeah. so on. Now, where it gets tricky is that one of the medications we often use is a muscle paralyzing drug. <clears throat> and a muscle paralyzing drug is needed. It's a curare type drug. Uh, partly for the surgeon to actually operate inside the abdominal cavity and so on. They need the relaxed muscles to do that or to you know, move a, a joint around and so on. And we certainly need ourselves to insert a breathing tube uh, to actually ventilate the lungs during the operation. Yeah. So once we paralyze them, there is no capacity for the person themselves to make any sign of consciousness. Hmm. Whether it's pain or distress, uh, they are literally locked mm, in. Mm. Um, so if we give too much paralyzing medication and not enough sleep medication, that's when we get the problem. That's mm. when you get waking up during mm. surgery. Now, that sounds like and is sometimes a horrifying experience. I, I must stress it's extremely rare. Good. Um, <laughs> Good to know. You know, well less than one in 10,000 cases. Right, uh, right. We worry about it consistently. We ensure that we give just the right amount at the right time to avoid that. Uh, and, of course, it does go well uh, just, just about always. But, mm. you know, we're perfectionists. We want 100%, 100% mm. of the time. Mm. So do you use – so you would use certain physiological parameters to see if somebody's asleep, yeah, like their heart rate and – I guess if they're paralysed, then you wouldn't use their breathing. Do you use their eye movements or EEG stuff or anything like that? Yeah, so they're good questions. I mean, not so much mm. eye movements, mm. but their pupil size. The pupil size and your pupil response to light is an autonomic uh, or not, it doesn't require mus- um, muscular function. Mm-hmm. So they're not, it's not affected by the muscle paralyzing drug. So that was a classic way of doing it right through the 19th century, right ah. into and throughout the whole 20th century. Yeah. Now you mentioned um, the EEG or brainwave monitoring. So in the past, um, researchers had tried to use that to monitor what they thought was anesthesia or anesthesia depth. And the bottom line is the EEG is just too complex a waveform for us to pay attention to <laughs> while we're also trying to pay attention to everything else. Yeah. So it, it was seen to be not a usable uh, technology. Now, some very clever people, um, going back now a bit more than 20 years, realised that if you use computer processing, it could process mm. the EEG patterns. And they work with companies to derive an index, which we call the bispectral index, which gives a number between 0 and 100, which gives you what they believe is a depth of anesthesia. And I was really interested in this technology quite some time ago because we've done a lot of research following up people's quality of recovery after surgery to find out what can we do better to improve their whole experience of having surgery and particularly the recovery period out to weeks and months after surgery. And um, I thought, look, if we can crack this nut, if we can actually have an objective, reliable measure of how deep the anaesthetic is beyond the historical clinical signs, then we could absolutely prevent awareness 
which is great. But again, it's a relatively rare thing. Um, but I believe it had value day to day for everybody in that we can give just the right amount of anaesthetic for each person according to their individual responses uh, throughout the different parts of the operation. So the idea would be to personalise it so they don't get too much anaesthetic, which might potentially have effects down the track. Exactly, yeah. exactly right. And it's very simply, it's a bit like having a, um, you know, a speedometer on a car. If you don't know how fast you're going, then you can literally get yourself into trouble, yeah. if, especially if you're being distracted by something else. So mm. we give a certain amount of anaesthetic. Uh, if we don't give enough, of course, there's a risk that the person moves or mm-hmm. has awareness. But if we give too much, we, 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 there's good evidence to show if you give too much, you actually at least... Um, in a transient way can actually partly scramble the brain Mm. uh, and the person can actually, a bit like concussion um, Mm. or, uh, you know, a hangover Mm. after a a hard night, Mm. they have a a sense of cognitive impairment and confusion uh, and for the elderly that can last, you know, again, weeks or months afterwards. So we want to get it just right Uh, and this processed EEG monitoring uh, had all the hope uh, and we therefore set about doing a really large international trial. So this was a, a mega trial that uh, included thousands of patients, a randomised trial uh, for Dr G to impress her. Um, and we had it, and not only that, we published it in the Lancet. So, <gasps> oh, so wow. that you know that was We're one impressed. of one of my you know my sort of <clears throat> crowning sort of moments, if you like. But what we showed for the first time ever, in fact, any technology for anaesthesia actually led to an improvement. Uh, in patient recovery after surgery. So we use a lot of monitors. Uh, We believe it helps, but this was actually a study that demonstrated uh, effectiveness or actually a better response. So we reduced that risk of awareness or waking up uh, by fivefold. Fivefold, so a big difference. So so we clearly demonstrated it works. (laughs) It does what we'd always hope it would do. And it's because of that um, I use it now as a routine in all people having surgery where a muscle relaxant is used. It's, that's a common approach, not just at the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne, but really around the country and, and most parts of the world. So you'd be attaching EEG monitors to people's heads and it goes through this computer which spits out a number and says the depth of uh, consciousness. Exactly yeah. right. So it's like any monitor, like any technology, it's not foolproof. You need to understand mm. what the information is there. You need We look at the raw EEG at the same time and we integrate that information with the other information we have, including our own experience and the, the art, if you like, of, of the anaesthetic. Mm. And it's just, I just, it just gives us some extra crucially important information to sort of give a, a, a safer package. And, that, and I think that's important. Mm. Um, so I have a friend who's an anaesthetist and a couple of years ago he said... And I don't mean to be a devil's advocate, but he said that sometimes they don't all anaesthetists don't always understand exactly the response to some of the drugs. Is that is that a fair statement? So there's a I don't want to say hit and miss, but sometimes <laughs> giving some of the drugs, it, your your the patient's response might be a little bit different, and you've not quite completely sure which one it was that you've given because you do give a bit of a cocktail. Correct. Uh, you're right. I want to try and get the anaesthetist off the hook here, first of all. Firstly, uh, you're right. The individual response is quite varied. And it's, again, it's no different to other medications and including 
alcohol. Some people get affected quite quickly and or they respond differently to it, to a, a friend or a family member. Others actually can have a lot more. So this is exactly the same with anaesthetic medications. We, we give what we believe is the average dose or the right dose for that person, but the first thing we want to know is... Did that person have the response we expected? Do we need to use less or use more? Mm. And good anesthesiologists, uh, which I hope uh, is probably just about all in Australia, um, get that um, right. And in fact, it is quite amazing that we do get it so right Mm. so often. If you think about it, there's more than two, if not three million Australians have an anesthetic every year. So one in ten Australians will have an anesthetic. Um, that's in the millions of range. And, um, you know, the fact that we can do that so successfully, I think is really quite a miracle. Uh, just speaking of patient response, I'm one of those unfortunate people who seems to always get sick after anaesthetics. So oh. I'm, I'm a nightmare for the, the nurses and the doctors after the operation. You're a cliche, that's what it is. But I'll, I'll, I want to talk about this. So please, please do. I'd like to hear more about, is there anything I can do to avoid being sick after an anaesthetic? There's, yeah, yeah, uh, there, there is. Um, and it, you're right to raise it. It's, it is the commonest adverse consequence of the anaesthetic. Now, firstly, I want to say... The, the anesthesiologist gets blamed for this. They blame the medications. I want to pull in the surgeons here as well because actually having surgery, any sort of surgery, the body actually has a, an inflammatory or healing response that activates these nausea-type receptors. Now, the medications do it as well, and the classic, of course, mm-hmm. is the, is the morphine-type medications, mm-hmm. um, but it's a combination thing. So the brilliant uh, anesthesiologist, such as myself... <laughs> Um, can only do so much, but we can do a lot. And we know that if we give um, a particular cocktail of, medic- of medications and avoid others, that we can reduce your risk by at least 70%. So we can do a lot better, and, and, it, and it's important for your listeners, to know if they have had the similar problem, uh, please raise it with your surgeon or your anesthesiologist if, <clears throat> if you come for surgery because we can actually adjust the cocktail we give and give what we believe is a much safer and smoother anaesthetic and, and therefore prevent it a lot of the time. Uh, but equally importantly, if, it, if you do feel sick afterwards, we, there are different treatments we can use. And we use a combination treatment, not a single magic bullet. It's a combination. Sounds great. So, Paul, how the hell did you ever get into anaesthesiology? What well, was where? Where did your path start? It's a good question. I it's um I, it's a secret <gasps> an, anaesthesiology. So medical students know little or anything about it. The public know little or, or anything about it. Uh, there's a lot of misinformation and so on. And you know that was very much me. I'd spent my whole life wanting to be a country doctor. I love the idea of being a doctor. Um, I, I, I finished medical school. Uh, I had no interest in, in, in getting high grades because I knew, hey, I don't need to be a specialist. I can just squeak through medical training. I did all the usual resident jobs that would make me a good country doctor. I did obstetrics, paediatrics, uh, a bit of intensive care, a bit of emergency medicine. I worked in general practice. And I went off to England for one year to do a year of anaesthesia because Mm -hmm. I knew if I was going to work in country Australia, I needed to have skills for resuscitation, uh, possibly to give anaesthetics where, you know, it's often not specialist out in rural Australia. Uh, And I just thought it would round me off as a better general practitioner. So off to England I went and I simply loved it. It was such an amazing part of medicine. To actually 
speak with somebody, a patient uh, who's having surgery, is often very anxious. It's a, a major thing in their life and their family's lives. And to then speak with them, um, try and comfort them, uh, and then give them this cocktail of medications where you induce an immediate deep change in the human state. It, it absolutely blew my mind. And, and the fact that we could do that so reliably and so successfully and, and, and at the same time develop these skills that I could actually um, resurrect um, disaster situations, you know, at the end of a, a syringe, it was just, I just loved it. And at the end of the day, I, I came back from each day at work and I thought, I've had the most amazingly enjoyable day and I just simply fell in love with it and, and I want to know more and more and more about it and, and things like the concept of awareness under anaesthesia or why some people are sick and others are not sick and why do some people need a really big dose and others need a small dose and I just got more and more and more into it so I came back to Australia and my life and career changed Wow Do you know, um, I, you know I remember being in a labour ward and you know obviously uh, women in labour and you know, screaming in pain and uh, one lady needed an epidural and this anaesthetist just rocked in and within like three minutes she was calm and quiet and relaxed mm. and like everyone in the room just went, ah, oh. like everyone fell in love with this guy because yep. it, was, it was just all the anxiety went down, the pain went away and it was just, there are very few things in medicine which are immediate. Yeah. And that was just so immediate and and incredible to watch really so yeah i kind of get where, you, where, you, where you're coming from we might just throw to some sponsorship announcements and we'll come back with professor paul miles because we got a bazillion questions to ask you paul so you'll hang around won't you oh, indeed <laughs> thanks you are listening to a podcast from community radio 3 triple r fm in melbourne australia you are listening to 3 Triple R's Radio Therapy. It is 10.32 in the studio with us. This morning is Professor Paul Miles. Joining me, Dr. Mel Practice, Nurse EpiPen. Me. And, um, and uh, Dr. G-Spot. Paul, you were telling us about what uh, enthralled you about um, uh, becoming an anaesthetist. Um, does the general public... Do, I mean, I can't imagine that people would know too much about what you do apart from what they get from TV shows. Did you find that there is a, a literacy gap between what you do and what sort of uh, patients expect you to do? Oh, exactly right. And I think, you know, I, I, I don't blame the public, of course. Yeah. I don't blame... In fact, a lot of doctors really don't understand what we do. Yeah, it's, so I just like to have a yeah. so, uh, <laughs> um, uh, so, you know, a lot of it's, it's hidden behind the screens of, a, you know, an operating suite itself, which is a sterile environment, so a lot of people can't walk in and out of, of course. And equally, um, you know, the, the job we do is... Um, with the patient is done at a time when the patient has no yes. consciousness. Yeah, so yeah. They're, they're missing the really great <laughs> and clever things we do. Um, and uh, so, you know, I think we've grown as, as a special, uh, specialty, we've grown up with the reality that we will be underappreciated. They won't fully understand what we do and how we do it. And I, I, don't, I don't think we need to somehow go out there and have our egos kind of spruced up by anyone else we our responsibility is to take pride in our work and do it really well and the less the patient knows about it in some ways the better now um but nevertheless you know we do as a special as a specialty get concerned where perhaps it's not valued if they if people believe it's a simple job 
Mm. Uh, it could be done by anybody. And I need only mention Michael Jackson as one example mm. where giving mm. anaesthetic drugs by somebody not trained mm. Mm. Uh, can be quite lethal. Mm. Anesthesia in Australia is an incredibly safe area of medicine. It's mm. renowned for its um, um, uh, emphasis on patient safety, um, triple-checking everything, mm. uh, having it directed by specialists who had a lot of training mm. Uh, and we do that because we want a hundred percent success rate. We're not happy with ninety nine or ninety nine point five percent, and and that requires that attention to detail. So I take pride in my job, and I take pride in training uh, younger specialists. So I've just recently had a five hour operation, and I was wheeled into the theatre and I had already met the anaesthetist and I fell in love with him because he spent a lot of time reassuring me what was going to happen and how he was going to manage it. He went through the whole checklist of Mm. any allergies and previous health conditions which was and I think it's a key point visiting patients pre-op and when they put the profanol in, so that's the Michael Jackson drug, it was, I was out for the count and I don't remember anything. I even asked the theatre nurse if I behaved in theatre because I'm a bit of a scallywag. And she said, you were brilliant. She said, and you were unconscious. <laughs> so I have to say, I'm, I think anaesthetists or anesthesiologists are under-recognised yeah. in some of these procedures. Absolutely my hands and hat. Uh, taken off to it's this a fan club profession. For you today, oh. I'm, I'm loving it. It's great. <laughs> I was going to ask Professor Miles. I've read a bit about um, anaesthetists potentially, um, sadly, having a higher rate of suicide than other professions. And I, I was listening there before about you guys potentially being under recognised and stuff like that. How um, how might we address this in in um, anaesthetists? Well, sadly, it is a a real statistic. And as a profession and through the college and uh, and in my role as a leader of the specialty, we worry about it a lot. And there are several things we do. First of all, I think, you know, it's important for anyone really in any area of life, but certainly in medical uh, specialist areas, is that you need to gain your satisfaction and, and if you like, um, being fulfilled um, probably more internally than externally. Um, but equally, you need to build through your early phases of your career mechanisms and strategies to actually have sources of support, um, peer support, uh, family support and so on. Uh, and there are days or weeks where we do work incredibly hard and incredibly long hours and incredibly intense experiences. And if things do go badly wrong, despite all we do, we, can, we cannot save all situations. Um, it affects us very personally. Um, and I think, um, you know, the important thing for doctors, or probably, probably all healthcare professionals, is to be cognizant or wary of the fact that their friends or colleagues in the ward or in the operating suite may be having a bad day, either because of the job or perhaps from outside things. And, you know, I just think that uh, yeah, we're human beings. Uh, we, we deal with humanity, I think, at its most vulnerable um, and because of that, if we recognise that, that reality uh, and, and I guess look after each other, um, not just you know, mm. patient, doctor to patient, but pa- uh, doctor to another doctor. You, you, you bring up a really valid point, Paul. You know, I, as I walk through the uh, hallways of my hospital, I look at the people charged with um, caring for, uh, for the unwell and um, they're getting younger and younger. 
and um, it, it is, and I didn't, I didn't recognise at the time what an enormous responsibility it is, and how you can just kind of charge through it without even thinking. And one of the good things that uh, you know the medical students started bringing was the "Are you okay?" day, where they just you know, it was it was cool to say, "How are you going?" And yeah, somebody might say, "Yeah, I'm fine," or they might say, "Well, actually, no, I've had a pretty rough week," and I think that's super important in a, in a high stress job. Um, the time just gets away, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> we're going to ask Paul to stay in the studio, if you wouldn't mind, Paul. We're going to sure. bring in uh, Dr. Frank Cahill in a minute or two. We're going to play some sponsorship announcements. If this segment has brought up some issues for you, um, there is the Lifeline number, which is 131114, or there's Beyond Blue, um, which is a fantastic resource and website. Three triple R. It's, uh, it uh, was Radiothon uh, for uh, the two weeks of radiotherapy, the last two weeks, and it was a magnificent uh, two weeks. Uh, thank you so much to every single person, every single listener that really gave with their heart, with their wallet, with their soul. It was just beautiful. People calling up saying, hey, we love your work. Um, it's a very nice warm vibe. Don't forget, you can still subscribe till, was it Wednesday the 25th of September? Is that right? You can pay up till then. And lots and lots of... Uh, fantastic prizes to win as well we'd like to welcome to the studio dr frank Cahill. am i pronouncing that right is it cahill or cahill it always gets mixed up <laughs> uh, i prefer carl but it gets cahill cahill so it's right across the board but generally it's frank carl frank carl yeah frank um you are a uh, clinical and counseling psychologist who specializes in sleep is that correct right? yeah yeah just out of interest how did you get into that i mean when... good question um, well, I, I was doing my postgrad studies at Swinburne University, and um, um, I was very lucky to have a um, supervisor by the name of David Morowitz, Dr. David Morowitz. Oh, it's fantastic, and, yeah. Do you know him? Yeah, his book, uh, Better Sleep Without Drugs. That's that the one. Oh, That's the one. Yeah, yeah. So he got me involved in sleep, which was fantastic, yeah. and um, he sort of uh, coached me through a number of clients that I was working with at yeah. that time. But fortuitously, um, as I went into private practice, he was retiring. So what happened was he started referring clients to me. Uh, that's how it happens. It was, it was fantastic. And then all of a sudden I thought, I had my first client. I can never forget. Sleep client came in, had problems with sleep. I thought, oh my God, how am I going to deal with this one? So I followed his program, which was basically CBTI, yeah. uh, Cognitive Behavioural Therapy for Insomnia. And, uh, and I, I gave this woman some strategies and she came back about two weeks later. My God, she was cured. I thought... This is really good. I'm liking this. So I thought, hey, I might try another client and see how I go. Uh, anyway, um, as it turned out, I started to specialise in it and I developed a private practice in it. Um, I worked in, um, I currently now work at the Epworth Sleep Centre. Uh, so I work there on Thursday mornings. I've got a private practice out at East Hawthorne. And also, uh, I think as you mentioned in the introduction, I also work at Monash University. They've got a yeah, a specialist insomnia unit that specialises in insomnia and circadian rhythm disorders, which is another really interesting area of sleep. So, to, I mean, in the intro, I mentioned uh, <clears throat> you deal with insomnia, which is problems getting to sleep or staying asleep. Correct. And parasomnias, what are they? Ah, anything that goes bump in the night. Huh. So you've got nightmares, <laughs> yeah. um, which is quite common, often associated with trauma, but not always. Right. You can have um, people developing um, continuous nightmares, and some people can have them every night. Uh So there's a a specialist treatment around that. I'll talk to you about that. Uh 
The other one which I find is fascinating is a thing called um, hypnopompic hallucinations. I've had those. Have you? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah me too. Yeah. <laughs> T- tell us about that. Well, basically what happens is they occur in deep sleep. Mm. So that's in the first, say, um, the oh, what uh, 90 minutes of sleep. So once, once a person hits deep sleep, they can often have a paras- um, hypnopompic hallucination where they actually rocket out of deep sleep and then they see things in the room. Mm. And um, I've had clients that have seen uh, horses in the room, mm. spiders is a common one, dogs. Um, uh, I had one woman that actually had a river coming up in, oh. in the room and just coming up to her neck and then Jeez. she'd come out of it. I had one about three months ago. It was after a hip replacement. I can remember, um, not straight after Paul, but um, it was sometime after. He's pointing to Paul with this. I'm worried. I'm worried now. I was lying lying in bed because you've got to be really careful with your hip. You you can't cross it over. And I was back at home and uh, I can remember waking up out of deep sleep and I saw a man in a green suit. Oh, this is you? This is me. This is me. A man in a green suit just walking past my bed into the ensuite. And I just freaked. And generally what happens when a person has one of these um, hallucinations, they fly out of bed, yeah. usually turn the light on, and it's gone in about 30 seconds. Yeah, yeah. So they only last very briefly. Yeah. But usually they're associated with stress. Um, yeah. So if a person's getting a lot of these, it's generally a stress-related thing. So they look at what's going on in their life at this particular point in time, yeah. reducing stimulants. There are some kind of therapeutic work that I do around that to yeah. sort of um, uh, reduce it. But um, so you've got uh, nightmares, hypnopompic hallucinations, um, These are the parasomnias, yeah. Parasomnias, you've got... Um, sleepwalking and stuff? Sleepwalking is a very common one. Yeah. Uh, it usually starts in childhood and most cases it kind of resolves, but you get a lot of um, adults that actually continue on. Again, it's stress-related. If you talk to them, they'll say um, the sleepwalking is worse when they're under stress. Yeah. But, of course, when you've got drugs like um, um, zolpidem, uh, Stilnox is a very common one. I remember I, had a, had a, um, I was working with a client who was... Um, using um, Stilnox regularly, mm-hmm. which a lot of clients do once they get sort of um, uh, reliant on it. Mm-hmm. Um, th- her parents had to actually lock her in a room at um, when she went to bed um, because she wow. had uh, lots of experiences prior to that where she'd be, um, she'd take the Stilnox, go to bed, come out, make dinner or cook, really? have conversations with family members, have no recollection of it at all. Yeah, absolutely. But in the absence of medication, people just can be sleepwalkers, usually stress-related um, treatments. Uh, yeah, I mean, I often use this show for my own sort of medical Oh, here diagnosis. we go, yes. <laughs> Come in and take a seat. <laughs> now, I remember, I mean, just to, to clarify the phenomenology of what this was, I once took a flight back from the States and I was awake for about 30 hours for a whole variety of reasons I'd been out the night before. But, and so I hadn't slept and I came home mm. and... Um, I only had like an hour sleep because I had to go out to a friend's engagement. And when I woke up for about maybe a full minute or so, I had no recollection of where I was, who I was. Like I couldn't even remember my name. Um, I I looked around the house and I didn't recognize. And I I wasn't scared, but it was was all... uh, uh, I had a complete amnestic episode. And Mm. then... um, uh, at the time, my girlfriend said, come on, you're mucking around. And I said, no, 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 really, I don't, who, you look really nice, but I don't know who you are. <laughs> Terrible thing to say, but it's true. Um, and she said, oh, well, you know, you, uh, look, I think you're actually having a stroke. I'm going to call an ambulance. Oh. And then at two minutes, I just went, Boop, and it all came back. Um, 
you're looking at me like you've never heard of that before. No, which I have. Me worried. It, uh, <laughs> I am concerned. Um, no, it's uh, it's often. Uh, I think it's called a, con- uh, a confusional arousal response. Right. You can actually well, not be aware that you where you are, what you're doing, yeah. and totally disassociated. Oh, so it happens after long periods of staying awake. Well, absolutely, it can. Yeah, you can have hallucinations, a whole range of things. Yeah. So yeah. can occur. So, Frank, can you um, step us through what or what would we as a good, healthy sleep? Yeah. Some people need two hours, four hours. Some people need eight. We, you know, what do we understand what people need these days? Are there variations in people's needs? Yep. There's a great line goes, uh, sleep's a little bit like shoe sizes, people varying the amount of sleep that they need. And, um, and it's a really nice line that I present to mm. a lot of the clients because a lot of clients that I see come in and they have in their head that they have to have eight hours sleep and they're getting really anxious. And that's one of the perpetuating factors for insomnia where people think that they're not getting that and they should be getting that. So um, I kind of um, – the, the range generally is around at seven hours. So a healthy adult needs about seven hours sleep, but people do vary it. I can remember I had a client. It was a great story. She, um, she was 70, 73, 74 years old. She um, came in and she was on about three to four hours sleep, had been for years. And um, she was, um, I saw her down at Monash. And um, she was very, very concerned. I said, um, so what's, what's the problem? She said, everyone's telling me I need to have eight hours sleep and I'm only getting about three to four. I said, well, um, how do you function during the day? And she said, fine. And I said, um, so what's the problem? She said, well, I'm worried that um, it's going to affect my health. I'm worried that I'm going to go mad. I'm worried I'm going to die too early. And I said, well, you're 73 years old. I mean, you know, you're doing pretty well. And with that, once I gave a sort of, um, um, I guess, absolution Mm. in terms of this particular concern, (laughs) she, she had this weight lifted off her shoulder and she just went off and she felt great. Now, part of the problem with insomnia is worry and anxiety. So if I feel that I'm not getting enough sleep, that's going to increase my arousal levels. I'm going to be lying in bed for a long period of time, and that's going to, to perpetuate the insomnia. And they're the kind of things that we look for, the factors or the mistakes that people are making that it's perpetuating it. Mm. I guess the other things that people do too is clock watch, like watch the clock and mm-hmm. think, oh, it's 3.24, I'm still not asleep. Oh, it's 3.50, I'm still not asleep. And that's, I mean, I remember, I remember saying that to a lot of people, it's just, you know, turn the clock around, you don't need to see it. Yeah, it's deadly. There, there yeah. are two kinds of clock watches. There are those that wake about 3 o'clock in the morning and look at the clock and think, oh, great, I've got another three or four hours to sleep. <laughs> and then you've got those that just wake continually and they're looking at the clock and think, oh, my God, I've only got three or four hours and I've got to get to sleep, otherwise it won't function the next day. So, Frank, could you give us some advice and the mm. listeners mm. about what, how to help people that might have some sleep <coughs> problems? What, what are the steps people can do? For example, Dr G-Spot talked about um, having phones on late at night. Mm. But are there some little rules that people should get into to have a, you know, maybe to have some healthy sleep, even if it's only four hours? Yeah. Um, look, at Probably best to kind of look at insomnia in three places or three aspects of it. You've got sleep onset insomnia, so difficulty falling asleep, and there's lots of anxiety associated with that. Mm. You've got mm. sleep maintenance insomnia, so there are people who can fall asleep but they wake frequently during the night, mm. but typically will wake around about two or three and then struggle to go back to sleep. Mm. And then you've got early morning waking, which is often either associated with A, um, depression. So we see a lot of people with depression waking at three and can't go back to sleep, or they live a very busy life, and uh, and they wake up and their mind just switches on and they can't switch it off. So um, so coming back to the first one, sleep um, onset insomnia, 
The general rule, um, go to bed when you normally go to bed. Um, when sleep onset starts, it's usually something sort of set it off and then people lie in bed and they struggle to fall asleep. So probably um, my best advice, if you get into bed and you're really struggling to fall asleep, get out of bed. Um, now, the, if you look at the research that will tell you um, and all the, the, the work done on insomnia, they'll say get out of bed and wait until you're tired. But if you're dealing with people with sleep onset anxiety, they don't get tired. They just get more anxious. Mm. And so what I generally get them to do is get out of bed for about a 10-minute break. Um, the timing of getting out of bed, I usually say when you're starting to get bent out of shape. So that could be 30 minutes, that could be 40 minutes. Mm. Don't clock watch and say, oh, if I'm not asleep after 20 minutes, I've got to get out of bed. Because yeah. they start every 20 minutes they get out of bed and they're doing that all night long. So wait till they get bent out of shape. And then I get them out of bed for about 10 minutes just to cool down and reset. Um, and the body temperature I find is a really big issue here. Mm. Because if people are lying in bed, tossing and turning, trying to get to sleep, their body temperature goes up. Mm. And we know the body temperature is associated with sleep. So as sleep um, uh, comes to us our body temperature naturally drops as melatonin levels go up so getting out of bed cooling down reset what do you do well sit down and either stare at the dog or um, you know flip through a magazine but 10 minutes is about the max and then go back to bed so with sleep onset insomnia it responds very well to behavioral therapies so there's getting out of bed short breaks come back and continue as well and you might have to repeat that a couple of times um, the other thing, too, I, I put a lot of emphasis on not trying to get to sleep. Mm. And this is where a lot of people sort of fall off the twig in mm. terms of um, trying to control sleep. Because they're not sleeping, they think, oh, my God, what am I going to do mm. next? So they use apps, they use all sorts of things. So I get a lot of people just to focus on just lying there and drifting, which is, you know, favourite memories, what they did today, you know, what's going on and so forth. So generally, um, not focusing on trying to get to sleep, number one. And number two... Um, getting out of bed for short breaks. And that usually breaks the sleep onset. The sleep maintenance insomnia is a really interesting area. This is where people um, kind of develop a bit of a conditional arousal response. Well, they'll wake at, say, be in the habit of waking at, say, 2 or 3 in the morning, and that's it. And then they struggle to go to sleep. And uh, night after night it happens. But what they're doing kind of perpetuates it. They lie in bed, they engage in thinking and worrying, they um, pull out their phones, they put on their meditation tapes, they do all sorts of things which kind of keep them up. Some people get out and watch TV, but they get into a pattern of doing this all night long. And then they usually fall asleep around about four or five for a couple of hours and they're back um, and they get out with six or so. Generally, sleep maintenance insomnia responds really well to a thing called sleep restriction. So, um, for example, if a person's uh, lying in bed for, uh, let's say they, they get into bed and they're in bed for about eight hours, for example, and they're getting about five hours sleep consistently, what we do is we actually put them in bed for the period that they're asleep. So that could be like five or six hours. So, so if a person's going to bed at 10 yeah. and getting up at, say, six, yeah. they're in bed for eight hours. Right. And they're waking in the middle of the night and they're taking about two hours out of that. So yeah. they're on about, let's say, five or six hours. Yeah. We generally put them in bed for about six hours. So, so you put them to bed later? Much later. Like at one or something or... Correct. Typically, it's about 12 to 6 or 11.30 to 6. And that works really well. And what happens is, is that it actually increases the overall sleep pressure. And sleep pressure is really important. So after a couple of days, what happens is, is that that waking period in the middle of the night, because the increase of sleep pressure starts to diminish, ah. they still wake 
at the set time because we're kind of conditioned to wake at a set oh, time. Oh, but just later in the morning. Well, it'll either push it out later yeah. or what will happen is it'll um, uh, they'll wake and they'll sort of you know raise their head to the surface and they'll go, oh, clunk, and they'll go back to sleep. Really? So the sleep pressure drives, and that, that's the gold standard treatment for actually sleep maintenance insomnia. It works really well. How about that? Yeah. So... Yeah, I, I actually started to hear about that recently that it, I didn't realise it was for middle insomnia, that is the insomnia of um, once you're off to sleep, waking up a lot, but you'd, you would go to bed later, which is kind of... Counterintuitive. It's opposite of what your mum would tell you. Like, if you're really tired, go to bed earlier. Yeah? Well, this is one of the mistakes people make. When yeah. they're not sleeping well, they think, oh, I've got to get to bed earlier. Yeah, so yeah. they go to bed at ridiculous times like 9 o'clock, whereas before they were going to bed at about 11, 11.30. So yeah. they, they, they're starting to induce what we call a safety behaviour. And safety behaviours are deadly in relation to perpetuating insomnia. So, yeah, get them to go to bed much later. Because it become help. a sorry a conditioned response. You just keep doing it and it just worsens it and it just... Correct. Self-fulfilling. Correct, uh, yeah. type of thing. Yeah. Wow. Um, what about stimulants like coffee, tea, um, soft drinks... Alcohol. Alcohol, TV screens before bed. I mean, you got any thoughts about that? Uh, yeah, well, obviously alcohol is a bit of an issue because um, if you get too much of a skinful, and we all know what that is and what level that becomes, um, it'll put you to sleep because it's a depressant, but actually typically wakes people up during the night. So they have more fractured sleep. Um, uh, coffee, coffee's a really interesting one. Um, some people can have a cup, like my wife, if she's listening out there, she has a cup of coffee before she goes to bed. Sleeps like a log. I, I have a you do that. I have a strong black coffee in bed, and then I put my head down. I'm asleep. There you uh, go. Go figure. There must be some genetic. <laughs> no, there is. Some... That's slow acetylators. Yep. Slow and fast acetylators. Paul's nodding his head. Yep, yep. yep. I'm Thank near you. that. Yes. No. You, you, there's genetic predisposition to either metabolizing some medications very fast and others slow. And it comes back to what we were talking about earlier about individual responses to medications. And coffee is a great example. So I'm a slow acetylator. Okay. Put, put oh, no, 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 you're a fast settler. You're a fast settler. Yeah, better. Yeah, you. top of the class. You get it out quickly. That's gone on the top of my business card. Faster settler. <laughs> Can I just say one thing? I heard a really good comment about going to bed. Yeah. So bed should, you should only be thinking about bed for sleeping or sex. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and a lot of people do the opposite. They um, they use it as an entertainment system. Yeah. <laughs> so they're getting that. <laughs> They've got the television going, but they've got it on a timer, so that's okay, Frank. <laughs> they've got uh, oh, they've got the music going, they've got their apps, they've got everything going. G- generally what happens is, uh, um, and th- this is a thing, there are people out there that do make all the wrong mistakes and they sleep like a lot. Mm. But if you're not sleeping well, they're the things you need to sort of take out and just associate the bed with sleep. So if you could give, like, we've got about a minute left, Frank, um, if you could, I mean, what are the sort of top one, two, three, four, five, whatever things that you would be telling people to do, just general public, to get a better night's sleep? Stop worrying about not sleeping. Yeah? That, that's the top of the list. That's one, two, three, four, five, yeah? Pretty much, pretty much. Most people, um, we, we take sleep for granted. And, you know, you go to bed tonight, a lot of good sleepers will go to bed tonight and they'll think, they won't even think about not going to sleep. Yeah. They go to sleep. The people that have difficulty going to sleep, they start worrying about it. And it's the worry that perpetuates the insomnia. So my advice is to stop worrying about not sleeping because your body will give you the rest that you need. If you don't sleep well tonight, you'll sleep better tomorrow night or the night after. So understand it's, it's a natural homeostatic drive. I used to tell people that, um, you know, as you say, just drifting would, mm. is, is almost equivalent to a good night's sleep. Yeah, because there's this thing called sleep state misperception where you think you'd be awake, be lying there, and actually, in fact, you could be asleep. 
Yeah. So if you just f- focus on resting your body throughout the night, yeah. that's, that will do the trick. Oh, fantastic stuff. We could talk for hours about this. Mm. In fact, we should have both you, Jen. I'm going to get a guarantee that they're going to come back on the show on air. <laughs> so you can't say, no, no, I didn't say that. Oh, you so, got me. You got me. I'll come. <laughs> Thank yeah, you. I'm in. Fra- I'm in. Fa- fantastic. <laughs> we will repeat the sleep show. Um, this is just fantastic stuff. We're going to continue with the conversation at uh, the cafe across the road. Um, but... Here at Triple R, um, you're going to be having Einstein a go-go. And the scientists, look, they're all keen to go in that studio next door. They're chomp- chomping at the bit. You have been listening to uh, Dr. Mal Practice, Nurse EpiPen, Professor Paul Miles, Dr. Frank Carl, and Dr. G-Spot. Um, we will catch up with you at uh, 10 o'clock next Sunday morning. Have a listen to these. Hi, this is Panel Beta. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.